0: to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together to discuss topics from the wild world of ecology, evolution, and natural history. Aaron and I are two old college friends who decided that this would be a fun thing to talk about on a bi-weekly basis.
1: And yeah, so, don't have anything else going on a Sunday night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, neither do I, for better or for worse. But... This time around, Aaron and I have chosen to discuss natural history uh, exploratory missions, right? You called it Weird Expeditions. Oh, sure. Weird Expeditions. That's fine.
1: I feel like that flows a lot easier. Yeah,
0: Weird Expeditions. We'll call it that. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, this time around, we have decided to discuss Weird Expeditions. So, how was the research for you this time
1: around? Oh, this was a struggle for me. Oh, okay. I'm I'm not going to lie. I went through a lot of different things before I settled on something that I think works. I know you had something in mind.
0: I definitely did. I came across this when I was researching our last episode, but I'll get into that more when I do my bit. Did you go first last time or did I? Oh, you're up. I went I'm first up? last time. Oh, all right. Well, then uh, in that case, let me get started. So... As regular listeners will know, I hope we have some of those by now. But last podcast, I discussed the Antarctic midge in Antarctica.
1: Shocker that that's where it's found.
0: I know. Crazy. (laughs) Who would have thought? But in the process of researching that animal, I found out about the expedition which discovered it, which was the groundbreaking expedition of the Belgica, from 18, 1897 to 1899 that explored the Antarctic continent. Um, really, the in many ways, the first expedition of its kind. And just like the sheer uh, craziness that happened on this expedition. So I originally was going to try to shoehorn it into the previous episode, but it would have been way too much. So I decided it was best to just cut it out and then do a whole nother podcast bit on it. So right off the bat, I want to give a shout out to a book called Madhouse at the End of the Earth by Julian Sancton. Um, The book goes into a huge degree of detail on this expedition and is really a compelling read, in my opinion. So if this podcast piques your interest on the topic, I would recommend checking it out because the book will go into way more detail than I could get into during this podcast. But the most important thing I can do to give a setting for this expedition is to describe how it came about and the time period in which it came about, because at the time, even though this was technically a scientific expedition, expeditions like this weren't really primarily undertaken for scientific reasons, if that makes sense.
1: Was it more a status thing, like for glory?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were almost political in nature especially this one, because of the commander of the expedition, uh, Adrien de Gelache. His family is very well known throughout Belgium at the time, and still is. They were public figures, and one of his ancestors was actually a prime minister of Belgium. So he had a certain degree of name recognition, and so any disgrace that he brought on himself would also be brought on his family. And because of how well known he was upon Belgium as a whole, really. And so and so, in many ways, the reputation of the expedition was more important than what actually was discovered or what happened on the expedition,
1: right? So all he had to do was make it there and come back in one piece. No, no. It, in oh, fact he had to put a little flag in the ground?
0: precisely the opposite he couldn't just go there and turn around he had to go there and do something so no one had ever done before and then come back otherwise he was just going to be completely eviscerated by the press Um, and his family would be embarrassed and it would be a hugely it would just be a scandal really and this wasn't necessarily a phenomenon unique to belgium either because yellow press was widespread throughout the you know throughout the western world at this time especially like I don't know if you learned about this much about the Spanish-American War. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that what was,
1: helped contribute to the US getting involved.
0: That was I would argue the primary cause of the US getting involved in that war. Really was the yellow press in the United States. And similar things existed in Belgium and a lot of times they targeted you know high-profile explorers especially those with from well-renowned families. So Desrelash the commander here was really being hit from both sides so throughout this expedition he's more considering the political uh, ramifications of what he's doing more than i would argue more than the safety of his crew and uh any scientific expeditions or scientific discoveries that he would be making on this expedition
1: this is your old-timey african safari kind of expedition you know go in shoot it blatant disregard for the actual people helping you out Yes,
0: yes, exactly. Except this is taking place in Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, same kind of idea. The other thing to consider, too, is that because this is a Belgian expedition, um, and, Belgium, and Belgium is not really a very large country, nor is it a country known for. Be very
1: polar... careful because no, no, no. our second <laughs> popular city is Brussels. We have no. a surprisingly large following in Belgium. Tread very carefully with whatever you're going to say.
0: I'm not going to say anything bad about Belgium. Belgians know their country isn't particularly large. I hope. But um, act- and act- I think overall this expedition was quite successful, really. But I don't think Belgium is also isn't a country that's known for polar exploration prior to this expedition. And uh, it's also not known for naval power or naval prowess, again, prior to this expedition. So that meant that Desjelage had to hire a lot of foreigners to man this trip, which, when you consider the first thing I talked about, was kind of a scandal in and of itself. Right. There's this, you know, very high profile figure from Belgium leading a Belgian national expedition with the consent of the Belgian king at the time. Manning his expedition with non-Belgians at a time when extreme nationalism and jingoism are in full swing throughout the world, whether it's in Europe or the United States or parts of Asia or wherever, right? Um, and that eventually would lead to World War One, but that's a whole other story.
1: That's for a different podcast. Yeah, that's not uh, that's not within our purview. Although we brought it up, I feel like a couple times.
0: Yeah, that that could very well be true. Anyway, but yeah, so a lot of these crew members were from Norway. Some of them were from Eastern Europe. Uh, there was even one guy from America. We'll talk about him. But yeah, so De Gilles also had to hire a lot of Belgians on this expedition. And this created this dynamic where the Belgian crew knew that they had a lot of leverage because they couldn't just get fired or tossed overboard, really. because then that would be a scandal. You know, the Belgian leader of this expedition is tossing Belgians overboard or dismissing Belgian crew. You know, he's not. he doesn't represent our country. He's, you know, uh, tr- almost traitorous in nature if something like that were to come to light. And on the other side of that coin, this generated animosity with the non-Belgian crew who felt that he was showing favoritism. So he really had to walk a very fine line and for all of his other very admirable qualities, Dejilas was perhaps not the best leader. Um, His leadership qualities throughout this expedition are
1: lacking. Did he have any prior experience on a ship?
0: Oh, absolutely. He was was a very passionate uh, sailor and navigator uh, and ship captain and all these things. Um, Yeah, and for really no, like, particular discernible reason it it wasn't a family tradition or anything his father actually i think originally wanted him to go into the military but he just had this passion for naval activities and for being on ships and so he spent all his time sailing on ships and then eventually adrian wanted to captain this expedition and managed to use his family name And uh, own persuasive qualities to raise the funds for the expedition. The short answer is yes.
1: He had lots of naval experience before. Okay, so he's not just working a desk job and is like, hmm, Antarctica, that's a good place.
0: No, 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 not at all. Okay. That was not the situation.
1: So a decent start.
0: Yes, it was the situation that he hadn't done a lot of polar exploration, though, which will come into play. But in terms of navigating a ship and navigating winds and... Uh, Sailing and actually sailing a ship And commanding it He was very good at that for sure So at the start of the voyage They sailed You know out of Europe from Belgium Down the Atlantic along the coast Of South America The issue here was that The ship was designed for winter exploration And was therefore Insulated Making the ship almost uninhabitable In tropical (laughs) latitudes so for this part of the trip, they actually had to string up hammocks on the deck because they couldn't sleep below deck.
1: <laughs> At least they didn't start tearing out the insulation.
0: Oh, no, no, no. That would have been a huge mistake
1: for reasons that I will talk about. You don't have to talk about that. They're going to Antarctica. I think well, that's you... a good reason to keep it in place.
0: <laughs> yes, but it becomes particularly relevant for reasons that a lot of the crew did not foresee. Okay. Well, resume. Anyway, so, and as they stopped at ports along the South American coasts, they were welcomed as, you know, heroes, these great explorers. And during this process, some of the Belgian crew got so drunk and rowdy that they were disciplined by the commander, by by Deserlache, which created animosity between them and the commander. One of these people was the cook who was booted off of the expedition at Montevideo, and this will also become relevant. Food sucked. Well, no, it wasn't that he was a bad. That he was a particularly bad cook. Oh no, it sucked after they kicked him off. Yes, exactly. There was even an attempted mutiny in Chile, uh, just as they were about to depart for Antarctica, <laughs> and because Las tried to discipline um, a couple members of his crew, which backfired. And the issue here was that the expedition was not technically under uh, the purview of the Belgian Navy. So there was no way for Deja to court-martial or arrest the men. So he had to go to shore and make an agreement with the Chilean military to come back and take over his own ship.
1: That's like when the substitute teacher can't control the class, so they have to go next door to get a real teacher to come in. Exactly. (laughs) That is exactly what happened here. But yeah. These guys were,
0: you know, booted off the ship with the help of the Chileans. Along the way to Antarctica, they lost another crew member who was actually leaning out over the side of the ship to to break up a clump of coal in the boiler of the ship. He he fell in. And a wave came up over the ship and washed him out into the waters of the Southern Ocean.
1: Did anyone notice this or is just oh like, yeah? Hmm. Okay, yeah, this... I don't know if it's, you know, no, no, Craig's no, no, no. been gone a couple hours.
0: No, like, they, they sent him out, like, they told him to go do this, and every time he went out to do something crazy like this, because he was a pretty reckless sailor, they were like, hey, tie a rope around your waist so we can pull you back in. Hey, tie a rope around your waist. And he, every time he's was like, nah, I don't need to do that. So sure enough, a wave comes up, knocks him overboard, and he actually manages to grab onto a line that's trailing behind the ship, but they can't haul him in fast enough. And he dies of hypothermia. Also started the journey to Antarctica with two cats. One got on the nerve of one of the officers who threw it overboard. <laughs> Just tossed a cat into the ocean. Which,
1: you know. But the other cat was real quiet after that.
0: Oh, yeah. The other cat they liked a lot, actually. He was a real, he was really nice, great friend. They enjoyed having him around, but not this other cat.
1: They got <laughs> they got rid of him. They made him walk the plank. So casualties were at one reckless sailor, one asshole cat.
0: Exactly. And they're we're also down one cook and a couple of other of a couple of other mutinous sailors.
1: It sounds like it, that probably worked out for the best for them.
0: Agreed. Yes. They would not have wanted to have them on board given what they're in for. Anyway they eventually reached the continent they timed the trip so that they would arrive during the Antarctic summer which makes a lot of sense that's when most of the new species are available that's when the you know the continent is most traversable so they're able to document all these new species um, chart new islands make new readings it's worth noting that the navigator for this trip he actually made extraordinarily accurate readings of their position despite only seeing the stars occasionally because of the cl- because of cloudy skies and being in completely uncharted waters. And this is also the period of time when they discovered the flightless midge that I discussed in the previous episode, now known as Belgica-Antarctica, after this expedition. The main issue here, though, that they ran into was that they made it to Antarctica in January of 1898, relatively late in the exploration season, which made the possibility of overwintering in the Antarctic more and more possible each day they stayed there. And... This was not in their plans. The original plan was to head north to Australia and overwinter there, then head south again once the winter subsided. So there were gonna...
1: notes for our North American listeners, seasons are flipped. We change hemispheres. Yes. January Correct. is not dead of winter like it is now.
0: No. No it is not. So their plan was to spend two summers exploring the Antarctic and no winters whatsoever. Which is smart you know Antarctic winters are kind of rough if you're leading but if you're leading this expedition and it's getting late in the season you don't plan on you didn't originally plan to overwinter in the Antarctic what what do you do you you get out of there as soon as you can right to make sure you don't get trapped right right no no that's not what you do Dezirlasch delayed the departure from Antarctica and, in fact, actually kept sailing further south. You could very reasonably ask, why the hell would he do that? There are many possible explanations. Um, One is that he was trying to set a new record for the southernmost latitude reached at the time. Another was that he wanted to find the magnetic south pole, which would have been very important, not only as a symbolic discovery, but also in terms of a navigational discovery. Right? It would have helped navigators all over the world if they knew where the magnetic South Pole was. But it's possible that instead of these first two goals, he actually, at a certain point, wanted to overwinter in Antarctica um, because of the previous attempts at mutiny. Because if they're stuck there, it's really hard for the crew to leave. They have to stick together at that point and they have to listen to him. And also, if they overwintered in Antarctica, it would make the tale a lot more harrowing upon their
1: return, if they did return. So he's just after a good story. Yeah, honestly. Oh my god, and he's putting everyone's lives at risk. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. But there was some reasons for this. As as insane as that sounds to us now, uh, at the time, and especially given Dejelash's La- De position, there were some reasons for this one being that all of his creditors who funded the expedition would want some kind of you know compensation or wanted would want to get their money back and pretty much the only way that they were going to do that was if Desjardins, you know wrote down his story and told his story and enough people wanted to hear it so that people could make some money off of it so the more harrowing his story is, the more money he can make when he eventually writes down and sells that story. Another part of it is that the expedition would just get more recognition and more renown if, you know, people were to hear about oh the the harrowing tale of the belgica and all this other stuff. Like that sounds ridiculous, but at the same time that's arguably why me and you are talking about this expedition now.
1: Yeah, if it had worked out they'd gone there and went, hmm, all right, turned around. No one no one would care.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so people still talk about it because of what they went through. But whatever the case with Dejelash was, the men definitely did not want to overwinter in Antarctica. But yet that is what they were in for. As in March, the ship became trapped in pack ice, which meant they were stuck there for the winter. Um, The crew did not handle the winter well, shockingly, as they were living in cold, damp, crowded conditions aboard a ship that was relatively small. And eventually, there wasn't even any daylight. Their second cat died oh. after a few weeks, which is really sad. That also became problematic because that meant that the ship, the ship's rat population, got out of control. Um, a lot of the men developed heart conditions. Another Belgian officer actually died from this, although he probably had some kind of pre-existing condition that was, you know, brought out by his time in the Antarctic, that eventually led to his death and they also suffered from extreme cases of scurvy very limited vitamin c in fact the only really the only available source of vitamin c for them was penguin and or seal meat not the rats not the rats the issue with the penguin and seal meat was that d'azierlashe hated it and actually at a certain point forbade the men from eating it for a time
1: why would, if okay you don't you don't have to eat it if you don't like it okay he kind of does He has, at this point,
0: very severe scurvy. And the other thing, too, is that the meat really tastes like uh, a combination of chicken and fish and shit by a lot of the descriptions.
1: You had me going up until the second part.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's not it's very
1: unappetizing. Tastes horrible. And this is where not having a cook comes into play. So one of the reasons was he wanted to avoid a mutiny, so he traps them all there. What, what's the goal there? Team bonding activities? Basically, yeah. They're stuck in the ice, he passes around little coloring books. Pretty much. It sets up an escape room for them to perform together.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's it's not an escape room as much as it is an escape ship, and they're working against the ice.
1: But yeah, He gets out an old projector and puts on a corporate diversity <laughs> training.
0: They're doing all the anti-harassment seminars.
1: Yeah. (laughs) They have a whole sexual harassment section, not a single woman on the expedition.
0: But eventually the ship's doctor, the only American on board, uh, named Frederick Cook, convinced Dejelosh that it was a matter of life and death to eat penguin and seal meat. And so the crew began eating the meat, which did enough to combat the scurvy problem so that a lot of the crew were able to survive. Eventually, the winter did subside. You know, the sun came back. But even after this point, the ice refused to let go of the ship. So to avoid another overwintering, which would have almost certainly killed most of the crew, since given how sick they were during the first winter, they had to cut a channel in the ice using saws and explosives to free the Belgica. This was a dangerous proposition because the journey and overwintering had made some of the explosives faulty or completely non-functional. So if you lit a fuse, you really didn't know what was going to happen. And some of the ice they had to blast open was actually, you know, very close to the ship itself. So you blow up the ship, you're not getting out of there. (laughs) Um, But the men worked around the clock during the Antarctic summer when there's there's no darkness. The sun is up the whole time. And they eventually freed the ship in March of 1899. Now, it's worth noting that... The ship originally was trapped in March of 1898. So they were weeks, if not days, if not hours from being stuck again in the ice during this whole process. But they did make it out. And upon returning to Belgium, the crew received a hero's welcome because um, they were the only people to survive an Antarctic winter on the continent, um, you know, below the Antarctic circle. And they'd also made a lot of discoveries. They had discovered new species, charted new lands ocean passages, all of these things. They had done so much research and cataloged so many new species, in fact, that it would take a further 40 years for the expedition's data and specimens to be fully analyzed and
1: cataloged. So it was very successful. Okay. I thought it was going to end up being a massive disaster. No. One of those eating the Cabin Boys situations.
0: No, 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 no. There was none of that. Although there was... Definitely a lot of madness um, One of the sailors Definitely went crazy and thought that The crew were trying to kill him
1: Just give him some penguin meat, he'll be fine No, 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 no.
0: no. they tried that. that, it didn't work He just completely Went off his rocker
1: They just threw him off?
0: No, they kept him on board It made the task of freeing the ship a lot more complicated Because he was asked to take part in that With people that he thought were trying to kill him Every now and then So he was very unpredictable at one point he just like disappeared and like ran away and they were they were like oh my god where did he go those are the kind of like mental episodes that people go through when they're not when their circadian rhythms are disrupted by irregular light patterns
1: at one point they actually convinced him that he was a cat and that actually helped curb the rat problem a little bit (laughs) uh if only It's called making the best of a bad situation. And yes, they did have corporate training for that one as well. Captains passing out the W3 tax forms to fill out. All the training logs they have to sign, SOPs. Make sure you know how to properly operate the dynamite. Now, if OSHA got there, that's a whole other problem. Anyway, it's also worth talking about what
0: happens after they get back. um, Because once they get back... The crew go their separate ways, and many of them went on to very distinguished careers. Um, The first mate of the trip, uh, Roald Amundsen, uh, eventually went on to be the first to discover a northwest passage in the Canadian Arctic, which people had been searching for for decades, if not centuries. And then he would later come back to Antarctica and lead the expedition that was the first to reach the South Pole. He is rightly considered one of the greatest polar explorers of all time. The American doctor, Frederick Cook, later claimed to be the first to visit the North Pole, but that was highly contested. Uh, Amundsen would back him up on this claim, however. The two of them were very, very close friends. Cook would later distinguish himself by running a Ponzi scheme and winding and winding up in prison. Here for you, Cook. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, there is some speculation as to whether he did this intentionally
1: or unintentionally. How do you unintentionally run a Ponzi scheme?
0: So his Ponzi scheme was based around oil futures. So he kept so he kept like reaching out to potential investors, you know, talking about the profits that he would bring in from his oil company, and then using those investments to pay off previous investors, which is a which is a Ponzi scheme. But There it's not it's not quite known whether or not he really did expect, you know, those oil futures to pay off or whether he was just totally defrauding all these people. So that's how you kind of unintentionally run a Ponzi scheme, I guess.
1: He just really believed in it.
0: In any case, he was punished far more severely than a lot of other people who committed the same kind of crime. Possibly because of his contested poll claim and how this how that totally ruined his reputation, and so people kind of made an example of him. he's a controversial figure in a lot
1: of ways, a little bit of good, a little bit of bad in the end, I guess he gets a nice neutral gray,
0: like I said, Cook and Amundsen remained very close friends with Amundsen actually even visiting Cook in prison when Cook would allow no other visitors, so these two were very close, even after Cook was you know completely disgraced, and Amundsen was you know, elevated to, you know, heroic status. As for the commander of the expedition, Dejelash remained in poor health for years after the expedition, which was possibly due to the poisonous chemicals that they used to develop photographs on the trip. But he did begin a legacy of Antarctic exploration in his family. This started with him. This was not a, a tradition prior to the Belgica and his descendants would take part in other scientific expeditions to the continent, and the strait he first sailed in Antarctica is now known as the Last Strait. In what the about end, the
1: flies? What about the what? The flies. Do you have any notes how they found the flies? Oh,
0: no, they were just poking around in rocks, and they discovered these midges.
1: That's it? I, th- I thought there'd be more. No, no. The I discover- thought would be like odd... A guy lost like three fingers and an eye to get these flies, you know?
0: No, no, (laughs) nothing quite
1: like that. I I don't know why. I was under the impression that the flies were somehow the focal point of this trip, but in hindsight, exploring the (laughs) Antarctic is a much more impressive feat.
0: Only you would (laughs) reasonably think that.
1: (laughs) Just bring a couple back in a jar. What Only I got.
0: you. A jar full of flies. Take a oh. look at that.
1: Don't spend it all one place.
0: Oh, yeah. Imagine coming back with that to the king of Belgium. So, check this out. I know that you, like... Yeah, so, hey, King Leopold. How you doing, buddy? Look, I know that you totally backed my expedition and expected me to discover something really, really important. And guess what I brought back for you? I got these little mouse turd looking things. (laughs) Woo!
1: They're not doing much. Rattles them around in a jar.
0: They're not doing much right now, but wait another winter and they'll turn into these little tiny flightless bugs that can't do anything except make more mouse turds.
1: They're really tangy
0: though, let me tell you. (laughs) They really do a number on your scurvy. Don't ask how I found that out.
1: Oh, but imagine the alternate timeline where that's the only thing they brought back. I mean, <laughs> for all you know, that was already there. They probably just picked them off the the crew. It was like, eh, sure. Got Antarctic bugs now.
0: There was lots of other stuff that I didn't even get to talk about. It's because I wanted to keep this down time-wise. It's already running a little bit long, but...
1: And i give it sum up a couple. Just a couple all right. shenanigans. All right. We already so... got the crazy guy.
0: So we got the crazy guy. There was also another time when um the doctor was going out, you know, just walking around the ice, and eventually, you know, fell feels like uh he's gonna lie down, relax, look at the stars. There's no one there's no light pollution or anything, so the stars are beautiful in the Antarctic. No one else has really looked at the stars this way. So he's just lying there on the ice. While he's doing this, the captain slash navigator is on board the ship. And sees this little, like, black thing kind of crawling across the ice. And says, oh, look at that seal. (laughs) So he goes and grabs a rifle.
1: (laughs) Starts taking pot shots at the doctor.
0: No. Eventually, he's about to go take pot shots at the doctor and gets distracted by something else. (laughs) But he's maybe 30 seconds from killing the doctor. (laughs) Also worth talking about was at a certain point um, during the summer, once the sun had returned, they ran out of penguin meat, but the ice wasn't thawed out enough yet for the penguins to, like, reach the area around the ship. So this expedition went out to go kill more penguins, and they called themselves the Order of the Penguin because of this trip that they were undertaking. And they came back with zero penguins.
1: Maybe it's an ironic name.
0: These three on this expedition were Laquant, the navigator, um, Amundsen, the man who would uh, in the future become a famous explorer, and the doctor, who Laquant almost shot
1: earlier in the winter. Those three, you could write a comedy with them. You really could. They're really the focal points of this. They are. They're three remarkable people. They really
0: are. Um, so like I said, that's just skimming the surface. There's lots more that I don't have time to get into right now, but if you want to read more about it, I'm going to plug the book again. Mad House at the End of the Earth by Julian Sancton. Great read. Check it out if you
1: want. But yeah, that's my piece. All right. I liked it. Very cool. I thought the flies would play a bigger role, but in hindsight, I don't know why I thought that.
0: In hindsight, you should know why you think that, Aaron. <laughs> They're kind of...
1: They're kind of your specialty. All right. So I knew based on how excited you were to talk about this topic that I couldn't top your story by any means. Okay. So I decided to take a different route. I did I did a 180. How so? You'll see. So this expedition begins Wait, with a so, man... So I- instead of like this
0: being people exploring other land other like new animals and discovering them it's like animals discovering new people or something like that is that what you yeah mean it's a dog
1: getting lost it's actually a children's <laughs> book it didn't even happen it's called spot the lost puppy <laughs> come on let me read <laughs> so this expedition begins with a man named Juan M. Durrell Juan is an architect in Colombia one day in 2011 he was visiting his parents home in the countryside He went to use the bathroom when he heard a strange commotion. Juan spotted some sort of strange creature jumping around. He described it as moving frantically and smelling of musk or urine. Juan presumably closed the door to the bathroom. He didn't say, but I'm assuming he did, and went upstairs to grab his camera. He took a couple of photos of the strange creature, recognizing it to be some sort of weasel, before opening the door to let it out. The weasel had likely stumbled into the bathroom during the renovation, where the home had had parts of his roof and flooring removed and probably got stuck inside. Scientists do not think at this time that the weasel was smart enough to utilize toilets, but the article is scarce and we can't rule that out. Years later, Juan happened to become a fan of the app called iNaturalist, as I'm sure you're familiar with, Rustin. Ah, yes, most definitely. He remembered the photos he had taken of the weasel, and he had to actually access an old hard drive to recover and upload them. He almost lost them entirely. Juan is very passionate about taking photos of native freshwater snails, which is his main, uh, that's what he mainly uploads to the site. But he decided to post some old weasel photos, and it just happened to pique his curiosity. Uh, The weasel seemed uh, like a weasel. It's about 12 inches long in total, dark brown fur with a notable tan underbelly, kind of a weird chest pattern. At the time, Juan thought nothing of it. Initially, he thought he was just your typical long-tailed weasel, but that didn't quite feel right, so he began searching online and researching the mystery animal. It wasn't until Juan's photos started gaining traction online that he realized he hadn't taken a photo of the long-tailed weasel, but rather a photo of the Colombian weasel, with a pattern on the chest being the key difference. Whereas a long-tailed weasel was fairly common, the Colombian weasel have been thought to be extinct since 1988. Wow. Okay. Now, we still don't know much about the Colombian weasel today. They're small carnivores. They're actually one of the rarest mammals of their order found in the Neotropics today. They're thought to be at least partially aquatic, with some evidence of them occurring close to bodies of water. And, of course, they're endangered. And due to the house's close proximity to a nearby reserve is thought that there is a small population there? but there's been no data since. There's just no information on these guys. They're only known from five deceased specimens. Juan is actually the only person to have photos of a living specimen. At all. Ever.
0: Ah, yes. The the snail fanatic somehow managed to get a picture of the
1: really rare weasel. It was just on the toilet. It was on the can. That was the best part of this expedition. It was unintentional. Juan probably did not intend to rediscover a lost weasel species in the bathroom. I'm assuming he had other business in mind, but he has not divulged the information. So he basically gained
0: scientific renown basically because a really rare ferret decided to use his house as a rest stop.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he just marched right in there and rediscovered the endangered crap weasel. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what I'm going to be talking about. When we think of expeditions, we think of some brave Victorian explorer, how they plunge through the heart of the Congo to find some rare and elusive specimen. But our ex- our definition of an expedition has changed so much over the years. I think a lot of people get the idea that the world is smaller nowadays and there isn't anything new to discover except in a few extremely remote locations. But there's still stuff out there. So, like I said, I knew you had a super elaborate expedition With all kinds of moving parts and things that went wrong. And I figured the only way I could compete is do a 180. And focus on the small discoveries made by people exploring the most mundane of areas. So, to be clear. I talked about people traversing the Antarctic.
0: For the first time. And going where no man had gone before. And making remarkable discoveries. And you chose to talk about a man whose only intention was to rediscover his own plumbing system?
1: <laughs> but there's a, there's a theme to this. I have a couple other examples. It's, it's the idea. It's the idea that you don't have to be some sort of super elaborate politician, you know, mega millionaire going on this expedition. You can still discover something as your average Joe, as a nobody. Going to your toilet, you could find something new, and all you need is a camera.
0: Well, I guess we just gave justification for a bunch of weird people taking a camera to when the next time they take a shit. But come on, Aaron, Are, everyone's got one in
1: their pocket now.
0: All right, so is that so? Is that why you're going to be taking a bunch of pictures
1: in your bathroom next time? Is that what I'm supposed to? <laughs> there might be a crap weasel in there. It's either that or a big turd. I can't tell. Science. Science doesn't know at this time. Moving on. So Dr. Jack Longino is a world-renowned ant expert. He's led plenty of expeditions, actual expeditions, and discovered over a hundred different ant species in Central America. Did now, he pr- discover
0: an endangered ant species in a urinal?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was stuck to the mint. <laughs> Although that does remind me, there's an airport that was having issues with people peeing on the floor. So they put a sticker of a fly in the urinal and actually reduced that because everyone tried to hit the fly. I'm just imagining (laughs) this
0: guy going up to a urinal and seeing the ant in there and and his first thought being, wow, that's a really weird looking kidney stone.
1: So like I said, he's led plenty of expeditions. And prior to this incident, he had said himself. That most of the species native to Europe and North America have already been discovered, and that's why he bases most of his research in Central America, the tropics with higher diversity. Well, makes sense. One sunny day, Dr. Longino is out in his yard. He notices a small group of ants. He described as being totally out of place, as only an ant expert could tell. He recognized them belonging to a group mainly found in tropical environments and assumed it's probably an invasive species. But upon further investigations, no, it was an entirely new species he discovered in his backyard, known solely from his neighborhood, I believe. The only other specimens was found from one of his grad students who lifted a piece of pavement in their backyard. It's thought that they live deep underground in the dry Utah climate, but they've kind of migrated closer to the surface as we have better irrigation now and in suburbs, it's going to be a much more moist environment. So the ant expert who spent most of his career exploring the tropics finds a new ant just in his backyard. Turns out the real
0: ant discoveries were the friends we made along the way.
1: (laughs) The ones under the grad student's pavement. This is not the only time it's happened, by the way. Dr. Kazuharu Arakawa is a Japanese scientist, and he studies tardigrades. Tardigrades are microscopic animals, kind of resemble a maggot with legs. And in his spare time, Dr. Arakawa likes to take moss samples from around his apartment and examine them under a microscope, as only a scientist could do and get a kick out of. Well, in 2018, he knows the moss found in a particular parking lot near his apartment was unique, and that all these tardigrades he found, they actually reproduced well in captivity. So apparently tardigrades, which are nearly indestructible, these guys can survive intense heat, cold, and radiation. Uh, but I guess they don't like to get busy when people are watching. So it was weird and that these ones re- reproduce in a laboratory.
0: Wow, so they can survive just about anything except for an audience?
1: Except for erectile dysfunction? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs to make Tardigrade
1: Viagra ASAP. God damn it, I'm just nervous. Come on. It's really cold in here, God. I'm stressful, I had a long day of work. I'm going to bed.
0: I promise, this has never happened to me before. (laughs) (laughs) It's just because of that microscope, I'm I'm telling you.
1: (laughs) After sequencing the genome, Arakawa discovered that he had a new species. Yeah, discover them specifically in a certain patch of this parking lot. And they could actually prove to be a very important laboratory animal because they only reproduce, sorry, because they are one of the few that will reproduce in captivity. Wow, good for them. So yeah, we already have two examples of researchers who probably spend most of their time going to other areas to study things, stopping, looking in their own backyard and like, oh, well, this is new.
0: Wow. And to think, we would have no knowledge of that one species of tardigrade if that researcher hadn't decided to look in the handicapped space that one day.
1: (laughs) I guess no one used it because there's moss growing all over it. (laughs) It just makes for a softer landing. (laughs) Oh yeah, a lot of these backyard expeditions have been carried more or less in a researcher's spare time. But over the years, we've been seeing a lot more volunteers getting involved. In 2015, Brian Brown, the curator of entomology at the Los Angeles Natural History Museum, launched a study where he got a bunch of volunteers across the city to place fly traps in their backyard. And based on the flies retrieved from the traps, they could actually determine what is in the local environment. So they could tell like this is a shady and humid area, which is going to yield different animals than ones that are open and sunny. All kinds of different microclimates. Okay, that's actually really cool. They were even able to determine which family had recently buried a deceased pet based on the flies they got from the traps. And thank God (laughs) it was a dead dog, and they weren't trying to get away with murder. So basically they were either phoning the police
0: or explaining the meaning of the term on a farm upstate.
1: Either or. I can see them in the uh, police office. I swear to God, it's my daughter's hamster. These things just keel (laughs) over. They pretty much just explode. Every pet hamster dies a tragic death.
0: Look, officer, I know that you really think that I've buried a human body in my backyard, but... This hamster was huge! What if if I told you that it was actually like 20,000 gerbils?
1: 20,000? It's just a ton of them. I don't even know why I got that many. I didn't even like them. Shout out to uh, one of our old housemates who used to have a gerbil as a kid named Sturdy Legs that killed and ate its siblings. (laughs) Then went MIA for a while. And I think he said it burrowed into like an encyclopedia and lived there for a couple weeks. (laughs) Uh, They had a couple gerbils at the time. That was the mean one. And the nice one he, he killed when he tripped and fell onto it. Anyways, so during this little backyard expedition, they actually discovered about 30 new species of flies. And they named each one after one of the volunteer families named in this, involved in the study. And also one of which was discovered in the backyard of the museum. So they didn't really have to go far for that one.
0: Just imagine that Indiana Jones movie, like... Him chasing after the evil villain who's got like a vial full of flies, just like, it belongs in the backyard of a museum.
1: (laughs) 20,000 gerbils died for that one. (laughs) So the era of deep safari expeditions in the name of science has more or less come to an end. It's a new world thanks to all the advances we made in technology. Citizen science has so much potential to change the way we think about studying wildlife. Nowadays, anybody with a phone and internet access can aid in research. I think it's more or less better than they do. You know, we don't have enough scientists to just make these observations. We can't rely solely on them. Even seemingly mundane photos of well-known animals could reveal things like unique behaviors or an aberrant population that we didn't know. Or maybe an expanded range.
0: Yeah. yeah. That Honestly, yeah.
1: Yeah, so to date, there have actually been several discoveries made by curious people solely by posting photos on iNaturalist. So I already mentioned the crap weasel because I thought that was kind of the funniest to lead with. But example, in 2013, new species of poison dart frog discovered by iNatural user in Colombia. Just took a photo, didn't know what it was. New species. Just like that.
0: Unfortunately, the caption beneath that picture read, wait, should I have eaten this?
1: <laughs> I'm feeling kind of funny, guys. User never heard of from again. Yeah. <laughs> so in California, there were two very different species that had been rediscovered. One was an extremely rare isopod, no bigger than half an inch. that had only been documented once in all of California. And the other was a 4,000-pound ocean sunfish that was previously only thought to be found in Australian waters. And we now know that they can be found in California waters as well. Wow. Cool. Yeah, the two ends of the spectrum. The Green Mountain Quillwort is a recently discovered plant that was first documented on iNaturalist back in Vermont in 2013. And lastly, in 2014, an iNaturalist user in Vietnam casually uploaded a photo of a weird snail they found. Turns out that had only been known from a single sketch during one of Captain Cook's expeditions in the 1700s, and they had discovered the first living specimen. Okay, all very cool. Yeah, so the question remains, what is the weirdest scientific expedition? The craziest and most adventurous and off-the-rails? Oh, that's the one you go outside and you do for yourself. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk.
0: Wow, you really did a 180.
1: (laughs) I, I knew I couldn't compete with the Antarctic exploration.
0: You could have talked about other expeditions, man. Basically, any other polar expedition at the time went through some serious shit. Well, except for the one that Amundsen led to discover the South Pole. That one went pretty smoothly, but... Lots of other ones had serious, serious issues.
1: Yeah, but these were the these are the overlooked expeditions, and it it's inspiring and it fires you up and makes you want to go outside and start flipping rocks and taking photos.
0: That's true. That's true. Take a
1: look at that weird bird outside. Go download iNaturalist. Start taking photos. Maybe don't post the exact location just in case know, someone wants to steal it. Give it a bit of a range, but go outside.
0: Alright, well, you know what? I will rescind what I have said and uh, encourage people to do all of those things. Look for your own toilet
1: weasel or parking lot tardigrade. Maybe you turn over a log and discover a new isopod. You never know. And that's my piece.
0: It was a lot of fun, even if we didn't go to any particularly remarkable locations. Just to a bunch of people's backyards, but that's still
1: really cool. I mean, the bathroom might have been pretty dirty. I hope not. I mean, I mean, Weasel had been in it for God knows how long. Okay,
0: but it's not like the bathroom was in a Waffle House. It was just in somebody's <laughs> home. Like,
1: it's probably fine. Actually, you could you can find those photos. I'll, I'll probably link one on the Twitter. Yeah, definitely do that. The only, I believe he took six photos, the only six photos... Of this species of weasel, which hasn't been found since, I'm pretty sure. Just on this guy's toilet. And in that picture, the weasel is holding a magazine and trying to cover <laughs> up its crotch. It's like,
0: what the hell are you doing, man? No one knocks anymore. Yep. Next time, lock the door. Anyway. All right. So what are you thinking about for our next theme slash topic?
1: Uh, I had a I had a list of a couple things. Uh... Write down plants. Don't really talk about plants that much. Uh talk about weird or cool nature preserves. Uh conservation efforts. Caves. A lot of cool hmm. stuff in caves. I already talked about caves a couple times. You did, yeah. Yeah, let's 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 do pl let's do plants. Plant episode? Let's do a plant episode. I think episode. we're due. We're really dodging it.
0: We really are, yeah. we we got to give the botanist some love. Yeah, we're a, not, we're not doing contact. a fungi
1: episode following. I'm putting the foot down on that now. Oh, why not? That's the natural order of things. <laughs> Plant, fungi. You want to do a whole archaea bacteria episode? You know, Protus actually gives us some good wiggle room. I mean, maybe eventually. Anyway, all right. You, f- you feeling plants? Yeah, let's do plants. I think I got something cooking.
0: yeah. I could think of a couple cool things to talk about. you talked about the figs. I like the figs. The figs are very cool. Got to love a good
1: strangler fig. Anyway, you want to take us out? I'll take us out. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow and review on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to submit an idea for a future episode, you can find us at soup pot podcast at twitter.com or the primordial soup pot at gmail.com.
0: All right, sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin Pere. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. Go on an expedition.